I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Today, I am joined by a raven who cares, uh, the founder of Project Apario. My friend Andre is here. Hello, Andre. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Uh, I'm glad we finally were able to coordinate this. Um, you are a bit of a man of mystery, but very interesting. You have a very interesting project. I want to get into all of that, but the way I found out about you was because I have a couple of people on my telegram channel who are big fans of yours and they shared the video that you made about packet captures. So I definitely want to talk about that, but I think even before that, it's important to establish your credentials in talking about packet captures. Am I correct? You used to work for uh, Cisco and Oracle? That's right. Cisco Systems, not Cisco Foods. Right. Not like, and not Crisco, the shortening. Nor the song or the rap singer. Okay. All right. Cisco the Dragon. Cisco the, the Dragon. The thong song. Hey, I love that song. All right. All right. So, okay. So tell me about Cisco Systems and Oracle and what you did there. So at Cisco, I started working when I was in college, going to college in Boston, and I was hired as an intern. And shortly after, three months after getting hired, I was given a full-time job to work in uh, web development purposes to rebuild internal tools that they had. Uh, when I graduated college, I was hired into the advanced services organization. And in that capacity, I engineered and architected software from scratch with languages and frameworks that I'd never used before. Uh, I didn't know Ruby on Rails. I didn't know Java. I didn't know Groovy on Rails. Uh, I didn't know many of these other frameworks that existed. And so in this capacity, I had to learn all these new technologies and I built data analysis tools for them. Specifically, some of the tools that I created uh, included documentation systems that were designed to import petabytes of data, massive amounts of data, and then provide data-driven analytics and insight into operations so that C-level executives that I reported to would be able to make company-wide decisions and department-wide decisions that would impact a team of around 250 engineers. And this was an elite team of engineers. Most of them uh, had CCIE credentials and they were very well recognized and understood in the industry, published hundreds of books. Uh, and these are the people that I rubbed shoulders with up until uh, I changed my position within Cisco in 2015 to go from this testing organization and advanced services to the cloud version to build OpenStack. I know at least half of the words you just used. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 that's good. So, um, so if if I'm if I'm reading you correctly, it sounds like you were uh, devising systems to take a whole lot of data and make it so that it could be um, legible. Actionable. Okay, Actionable. great, great, actionable. Yeah. 
Okay. And so you said, uh, did you say CCIE certification? Is that, and can you tell me about that? So CCIE is a level of certification that Cisco offers and it basically certifies somebody who is an infrastructure expert for Cisco equipment. They understand how to build large networks, how to configure them. I don't have my CCIE. I don't even have a CCMA. Uh, I'm just a programmer. I'm not a network guy. But in the capacity of the work that I was doing, I was working with a lot of network engineers. And in that capacity, there were literally millions of devices that we were working with in our private labs. And the tools that I had to build included resource reservation and tracking tools, budget allocation tracking tools, documentation gathering tracking tools, project management and employee management, as well as bonuses and pay related fun stuff of the tech industry. So, you know, just in thinking about Project Apario, which we'll we'll get to and talk about, am I mistaken to think that this sounds like you were setting up tools to find like needles within haystacks? And to optimize and save money for the business ultimately. Okay. Okay, cool. So so that's at Cisco and then you moved to Oracle or was your role at Oracle very similar? Or did I uh, just mix no, that up? No, that's fine. Uh, so in uh, 2016, I was laid off. The company did a workforce reduction, a very large layoff, and they reprioritized their efforts with the OpenStack cloud infrastructure. And so I was impacted by this layoff. Uh, and for a few months time, I had a little bit of time off and that was during the election. Uh, and I started the Michael Trim show. And that was my YouTube show that I created. And in the capacity of that show, it earned over five and a half million views, was seen thousands of hundreds of thousands of hours uh, in terms of viewership. Uh, and then in January of 2017, I went to go work for Oracle as okay. a release engineer, they call it, which is setting policy and policy enforcement to the engineering team on how best to release software into the cloud infrastructure of the OCI architecture. All right. So glad we got that out of the way. I totally understand now. Um, let's talk about the video you did about the PCAPs. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand the packet capture idea at all. I think I have a an above average understanding, but certainly not a full and complete one. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with even the phrase packet captures, this has come to prominence because Mike Lindell has been talking about them now for a good six or seven months. The documentaries he's released have to do with packet captures and how packet captures were intercepted and that the data within those packets shows that our elections through the voting systems were hacked and manipulated and influenced by foreign actors, particularly China, resulting in the false selection of Joe Biden as the winner of the presidential election and a whole bunch of other illegitimate candidates up and down the ballot, as well as probably some ballot measures that should have never passed or failed that did pass or fail as a result of this fraud. So tell me about packet captures. Perfect. 
I'll make an analogy that I think many people can relate to. Uh, we all know that torrents exist. We all know that you can download movies and music illegally with torrents, but torrents can also be used legally. And in the information technology space in big tech, torrents are used significantly as a means of distributing data that is very large. When you download a torrent, it's just an address that says, here's a pool of IP addresses that connect to this, that have the copy of the file on. And what you're doing is you are downloading that file in segments. And the way the BitTorrent protocol works is it will take all these packets and it will download them from any IP address that is seeding it. And so it, therefore, when you look at, say, your internet connection speed that you have, if you try to download a file from one web server, you're going to be competing with anybody else that's connected to that server. But if it's distributed, like in the BitTorrent network, each packet is going to come from a different person. Now, in the idea of a packet capture, it's just think about when you download a file on a BitTorrent program, that's a packet capture. The BitTorrent program is literally capturing the packets and then reconstructing them from thousands of different potential IP addresses using cryptographic checksums in order to validate that the file is what the segment of the file was. And then it reconstructs the file for you when the file is done downloading. And then you get to do whatever you want with it. Like if it's installing an operating system or downloading a movie or transferring a data file, you get those and torrents are the best way of describing a packet capture per se. Wow. Okay. So that just put it in a lot of perspective for me because I have known about torrents for a really long time. And, you know, it's just like that you are the leecher, right? Is that what they call it? Like seeding yeah. and leeching, right? Yeah. So all the people out there that are seeding that same file, you can get bits and pieces from and those each one of them. So if there's a million of them and mm -hmm. you have a million uh, megabytes of data, for instance, and you get one megabyte from each one of those people just to make it very, Easy. yeah, right. Okay, cool. I got it. Okay. That makes sense. And so each one of those little pieces that I'm grabbing is a packet of data. Essentially. That's right. Okay, That's right. cool. And so my torrent program would have a record of those packets passing through too, right? Conceivably or no? Yes, depending on the type of router that you have okay. at your home and depending on whether or not logging is enabled. So okay. for me personally, I use Meraki products, which is a Cisco product. And in there, you get a very nice interface to download your PCAP files. So I can go into my router at home and I can download my PCAP files. And that will show me every IP address that I've connected to and every IP address that is connected to me. It shows wow. every packet of data that has left my network and every packet of data that has gone out of my network. Okay. Okay, cool. So, but those individual packets of data, right? So if you were to go down and let's say you did uh, capture this torrent file from a hundred different sources. So now you have the IP addresses of each one of those hundred sources, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the data, you have a record of the data that came via each one of those IP addresses, right? Mm -hmm. So how would you how would you read that data? Because what you're saying is that each one of those hundred, those collectively form one file, right? One movie or one document or whatever it is. Those hundred pieces are each a piece. So it's like a puzzle in some sense, but how do you how do you make out 
which piece is which, right? Like, it's that not like, it's not like the manual. one is the first 10 seconds of the movie. And then the next one is the next 10 seconds and the next 10 seconds. Right. So they don't have that individualization. You're getting pieces of the entire thing, the entire time. Right. That's right. And if the so, data is encrypted, yeah, right. if the data is encrypted, then you wouldn't be able to see, is this part one or part two, or is this text or is this not text? When it's encrypted, it's going to be ciphered and it's going to be shuffled. And in order to see what the actual value is, you would have to have the SSL private key in order to decrypt that data. Now, computer programs that are over HTTPS, which is the secure socket layer protocol, will encrypt data, and then the packets themselves will be encrypted. And so they'll provide header information about the packet, where it goes to and from in the time, but then it will also have the encrypted payload of the data. Now, if you're doing unencrypted traffic, then the plain text is going to be ciphered in just a different base of text, like hexadecimal, decimal, etc., binary. Uh, there are different ways of representing data and numbers, and you can do different bases to do that. Uh, and there are programs that you can download that will give you the ability of browsing a PCAP file. And it's trying to construct each one of the lines of the PCAP file with the payload of data, and then put it through a, a either a hex mod or a bin mod or some other modification that is doing a base transfer. So either from base two to base 10, base 10 to base 16, base two to base 16, uh, this is base mathematics. Uh, and the idea is that it would give you the representation of that data in those various different numerology bases. Depending on the type of data that's being transferred, you could present that data, say in base 16, and start seeing clear text passwords that get sent over the network if SSL is not enabled. And they would show up as embedded into a bunch of like special characters that looks weird and funky, but right there in the middle is, you know, password one, you know, to, to copy off from John Podesta, you know, to, <laughs> to protect your emails. Let's use password one. Uh -huh. uh, and let's send our password over clear text over the internet uh, in an email. And we're going to anybody that could intercept that packet. And there are many different ways to intercept a packet you'd be able to see, hey, there's that bit of information. Here's the password in plain text. Okay, and so when you are, so to read what is in the packet, you have to, it either has to be not encrypted in the first place, or you have to have the key to, is, it, is the correct term decrypt? Yeah. Okay, and so then at that point, you would be able to, with the proper context, understand what's in that packet. That's right. And it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of putting the pieces together because it's fragmented. The right. packets are fragmented and one particular attack vector that may come in may not be in linear series of other attack vectors that are coming in. So if you have 10 attacks that are coming in at once and each attack represents 100 packets, then the sequence of packets that you're going to read in your PCAP file are going to be shuffled. And so every packet that comes into the network layer may be connected to attack one, attack two, attack three, attack four, attack one, attack two, attack four, attack three, attack one, until the full attack is copied. So in terms of reconstructing it, you have to go from the latest to the newest, to the oldest. Okay. And then you have to reconstruct the packet as it comes in and then capture that data as it comes in to say, here's attack vector one. We know it's attack vector one because we have timestamp start and timestamp end. We have IP address origin 
we have IP address destination. That gives us a constraint for us to draw a box around these lines. And then we take the lines and we put them inside in the proper series to say this is attack one, taking line one, line five, line 20, line 52, whatever it might be. Here's attack one, here's attack two, attack three, four. Is there, and forgive my ignorance, obviously, I mean, this is just not my field at all. Um, is I, there, are there systems that can automate this process? Because what you're talking about sounds, um, first of all, a very uh, specific uh, field of expertise and also incredibly tedious to actually have to do, I, I guess, by hand, right? Mm. How does this happen in a sped up way so that someone could actually interpret, you know, as Lindell says, 37 terabytes of data? You create a script that processes the files mm -hmm. and attempts to build a hierarchy of the information. And it takes that data that's being read from the files, puts it into a normalized domain database, and then you run queries against the database to find the information out of it. Okay. So one of the things that was interesting to me in the video you made was that you reaffirmed the thing that Lindell has said and that other people have confirmed. It is impossible to fake uh, that much PCAP data. Mm -hmm. And can you help me understand why exactly it is impossible? So impossible refers to, is the act of recording the PCAP file impossible? No. You can take a network, you can take a router, and you can fill it with data, and you can generate a PCAP file that's 37 terabytes. You can do that. But what you can't spoof is intentionally planting the seeds or the individual packets that originate from all of these random IP addresses that you, A, don't know about, and then correlating those IP addresses to the destination. Now, one of the things that happens when you initialize the TCP and UDP protocols is they open up a port between the two IP addresses. And that port number typically is randomized unless it is on a controlled port, like you're uploading to HTTPS, which is 443, or uploading to HTTP, which is port 80. Uh, in some cases, when you're doing, say, database to database transfers or SOAP interface transfers, you're going to open up a, a connection request to a random port. And that random port is going to be within a range. And that range, you don't know what the numbers are, but they have to match. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to spoof the data, you would have to make sure that every single attack that you are trying to record in a spoof has that correct signature in order for it to be properly spoofed. Now, the duration of time required, in my opinion, based on my experience, to spoof that much data would be longer than the time that they have. Mm. Because it's hard to spoof all of these thousands of IP addresses that they have, and it's more used just Occam's razor at that point. Yeah. It's more logical that it's the real files, given right. the fact that Maricopa County will not release their routers, because that would conclusively prove the port numbers and the IP addresses that the servers that Lindell has connected to the Maricopa servers as, a, as, as I understand as being. Got it. Got it. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's my understanding of that too. So when you were explaining that, I was thinking about, um, cause somebody just asked me about certified mails, sending something in the certified mail yesterday, you know, on, in, in a certified mail exchange at the post office, you know, they give you your little barcode. You have that you've signed off on the certified piece of mail. The mail goes across the country. When it arrives at the destination, someone else signs for it. They scan your barcode. They let you know it's been received, right? So if we're talking about these two IP addresses, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that there is a record of it leaving the one and arriving at the other one for each and every one of these communications. And so to do that uh, a million times or a billion times or a trillion times or whatever it is, to compile that much data, that sounds like something that would be very, very difficult. It would be as difficult as me, you know, doing the certified mail thing here and then flying to the other side of the country to be there when it arrives. You know what I mean? Like it would be this it's elaborate, easier. elaborate it's situation. Easier to do the, it's easier to do the attack uh-huh. than it is to spoof the attack. Got it. There you go. See, perfect. Okay, cool. Very cool. All right. So, how do we know or what makes you what leads you to believe that the PCAPs contain what Lindell says they contain? Is it just on that Occam's razor exercise right there? And how would one be able to disprove the uh, authenticity of these PCAPs that they did come from the November 3rd, 2020 election? Very easily. Maricopa County releases the routers. They comply with the subpoena. They release the routers. And if Lindell does not have authentic PCAP files, then that would disprove it. But the reason, in my opinion, that they're not complying with the subpoena is because they know that it would validate the PCAP files that Lindell has. And that's what they're terrified of. Yeah, that's been my sense of it as well. Um, I'm sure that you were paying attention last week to what came out of the Mesa County, Colorado thing. Does that have any bearing on the PCAPs or is that entirely unrelated? I am not an expert in that subject, but I would say that they're unrelated based okay. on the limited knowledge that I have of it. Right. Because I think that what they were trying to, uh, at least what the Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, was trying to claim was that somehow the whistleblower video that Ron Watkins had dropped on Telegram a couple of weeks back was these stolen passwords that would have potentially uh, let someone into the the bio system. Am I understanding that part correctly? And then but that wouldn't have been able to give them access to to their router data to match in Mesa County. I don't know per se if okay. BIOS data is going to have uh, you have a password to a BIOS file and it's going to decrypt it. It's going to give you access to interface with it. That's going to give you the ability of enabling and disabling components of hardware, specifying clock speeds of your CPU, overclocking, underclocking, uh, setting a boot priority to say, I want to boot from CD first, or I want to boot from hard drive first, uh, enabling network boot. There are various different things that the BIOS can do. And the video that I saw from CodeMonkey, Ron Watkins, uh, that was published to me wasn't compelling. I wasn't impressed by it personally, but that was just me. And the reason is, you know, everybody can have blurry footage, first of all. Sure, sure. And it was hyped up, and then it was a... 
Well, I think that one of the, you know, from being at uh, the symposium, one of the things that seemed to me to be serious about about that stuff was that it indicated the systems in Mesa County, County, Colorado, were made intentionally less secure by the Dominion operators, enabling Maybe. those systems to be open. Okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe, right. yeah. So, so we can just we can move past that though. But just hypothesizing on that, just to expand a little bit, you know, the virtue of having a motherboard that has the ability of controlling the NIC, the network interface card, mm. on the BIOS to enable or disable it, isn't proof that the Dominion machines were connected to the internet during the election. Mm. That is not proof. Right. Showing a BIOS setting that has the ability of enacting and disabling hardware on a particular motherboard is not proof that they actually had that turned on. And it's not proof that they had the devices plugged in. You could have a NIC card and no Ethernet plugged into it, and it's not going to transfer. Okay. But what was revealed during the symposium that allegedly is real, and I don't know for a fact because I haven't verified it myself, is that there were 4G network cards to provide wireless connectivity over the cellular network that okay. would have bypassed the cell phone, that would have bypassed the Wi-Fi routers and would have bypassed any physical Ethernet cables. Got it. Okay. Well, also, though, I think that the other thing about that part of the presentation was that that's clearly beyond what the certification calls for by state law. Am I correct about that? Or is that just not your? I believe so. I mean, okay. I, would, okay. I would say based on my interpretation of it, that it would be unlawful for somebody to put a cell phone wireless card sure. in a tabulating machine. <laughs> like, yeah, one would think, right? Right. Everybody knows cell phones are so easy to hack. Just ask Hillary Clinton. And <laughs> the reality is that why would you put a cell phone chip that is giving you a MAC address and an IP address and it's doing it behind the scenes? Why would you have that in a tabulator unless if it wasn't being used for nefarious purposes? goes yeah. back to Occam's razor. They're guilty by Occam's razor and nothing else because show me something that is more plausible. Sure. And they can't. Well, you know, and so many of the people that are now making the argument that all of this is the big lie were making the same arguments we are making a few years ago. And it's even crazier that all of this is on an HBO documentary called Kill Chain. It's not like these people don't know what HBO is. Like, turn it on. Watch it. You'll see Democrat politicians, including the fake vice president, saying that all of this is totally possible and happens, and they claim that it did happen. So, anyway, um, what else do we need to cover about the PCAPs? It's a smoking gun. It is. It is literally, a, a, if you had the equivalent of an 8K camera that was able to see infrared, visible, and near-infrared light, then you would be able to have 3D perception with surround sound audio, with high-definition video, mm -hmm. and you watch somebody break into a Tiffany's and steal the diamonds. You're in court, you present the video and you say, your honor, I have video footage of this person stealing the diamonds at Tiffany's. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. You, you can't argue with it because it's irrefutable because it's, an, it's just the, it's a, it's literally a, like a recording, like a video recording of a, of a bank robbery. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, misunderstood at the cyber symposium, and I list myself among those people, that 
someone or that the group of cyber experts would be able to analyze all that data and then reach a conclusion in three days. And it sounds to me like the way you described the process of verifying or even reading these PCAPs, you know, that that's just an impossible task in that short amount of time. I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Phil Waldron, Colonel Phil Waldron said on the last day of the symposium that he expected it to be four to six weeks to, you know, get confirmation or validation from the cyber experts who were there. And I think that they've spent this time over the last few months validating them. I mean, if you're to believe what Mike Lindell says, he's validated them over and over again with plenty of different people. Um, yeah. All right, cool. All right, so I feel pretty good about that. Let's talk about uh, about Project Apario. Do you want to give me a, uh, a spiel about what the original point is? Because it seems to me like you're doing a similar thing to what you were doing back at Cisco, but you're doing it with uh, declassified intelligence from the government, open source intelligence directly from the government. Does that make That's sense? Right. Okay, good. Yes, that does. Um, so Project Pario is an OSINT research utility that I created. And the reason why I created it is because the JFK files were released and the National Archives went out of their way to make it impossible for you to research. And who came in and saved the day? Microsoft. And in order for you to run the version that Microsoft built that would analyze these JFK files by scanning them with OCR against known cryptonyms, which is a CIA phrase that they use that represents some cryptic message. And so they'll use terms like NASA. And if you make NASA an acronym, it's National Aeronautics Space Administration. But if you make NASA a cryptonym, never a straight answer. So the CIA uses cryptonyms, which are acronyms that are other acronyms that have other abbreviation meanings that are used to covertly share information about what they're doing, about who they're talking about, about which organizations or agencies are involved, and they use cryptonyms in order to do it. So Microsoft came out with a tool that would allow you to load a sample project of this basic interface that provided OCR search on the JFK files but they limited it to 1% of the records. In order to run all the records, you would have to import them into the Azure platform, and the cost would be around $60,000 a month. Jeez. Okay. Man, there's a lot in there. So, first of all, the JFK files were released. How has that not been a big story? And I think the answer is they're trying to make sure that it isn't one, right? actively and uh even to this day even okay. literally to this day uh there are many people that do not want the files released about the jfk assassination and one of the things that i learned about this process when the national archives released the files now if you go to cia.gov or statedepartment.gov or doj and you download declassified records they already are executed through ocr However, the JFK files that were released by the National Archives did not have OCR on them. They released them 25 years later after Congress said you need to release these. Past presidents who I personally believe are illegitimate as a result of election fraud that denied the release of these records. 
And ultimately, when Trump came into office, he authorized the release of the records and the National Archives, in my opinion, was mad at Trump for it. You know, orange man tweets bad stuff. And we're going to not run OCR on these documents. There were over 500,000 pages in the collection. And they give you the ability of downloading them one document at a time, where you can see 20 documents on one given page. And that's it. Or you could download them as these big, massive zip files that were three to four gigabytes in size that had tens of thousands of PDFs inside of them that none of them were searchable. The only other alternative to do the JFK research is to go to the Black Vault. The Black Vault has a copy of a lot of declassified files. So I downloaded the JFK files that they said came from the 2017 to 2018 release. However, when I downloaded them, the total size of the download was over 320 gigabytes in size. The National Archives release was 64 gigabytes in size. So as a software engineer, I couldn't compensate for where that 4x increase in disk space came from. I simply couldn't do it. They put one, they put one piece of paper on every document to say this comes from the black vault. They modify every document and then they run OCR on it. But that doesn't accommodate for literally a 400% increase in disk space. I wasn't able to reconcile it, and so I can't trust it. Okay. So are you saying when you, can't, when you say you can't trust it, you mean you can't trust that that's authentically the same thing that was released by the National Archives? Got it. Okay. I have no idea. And the reason was I couldn't justify going from 64 gigabytes to 320 gigabytes. I didn't know where that difference was coming from. And to me, that tells me a lot because the files that the National Archives released were the official files. Mm -hmm. Now, when I ran OCR and all the files, the total size of everything was 72 gigs, which meant that the text of the data was only 15 or 20 gigs total, not 300. Can we rewind again? So the OCR process, that's what allows you to make the document searchable? Correct. OCR is called optical character recognition. Okay. And what it's doing is it's scanning a region of the page looking for high contrast uh, from either black background or white background. It's looking for high contrast. And then it's counting the pixels of where those high contrasts are. And then if the pixels map a certain mathematical formula, then it represents this is the letter A, this is the letter Got B. It. And then the OCR engine has all of the math formulas that are needed to draw the lines and the curves. And so if you were to represent a line and say, how many, how many pixels activated here represent on top of this segment line that I recognize as being an A? And then they get a number back and they say, this is a 0.9 accuracy or a 0.7 accuracy. And it comes back with a number and then it will take that number and say, do we present this as an A or as a C or as an E? depending on the number that it comes back with, the number of matches uh, dictates the letter that it says that it is. Okay, and so something like this is absolutely essential for documents that are 60 years old and before the time of uh, modern computers and word processors and whatnot. We're talking about typewritten documents, uh, some handwritten documents, and to make that sort of thing searchable, you need to run the OCR. That's correct. And so... Pro Professional copies of Adobe Acrobat that will give you this ability where you can open a PDF and then you can run OCR within it. And what Acrobat will do is it will run the software that they have proprietary that Adobe created, and it does a better job at running OCR than what I have. 
I use an open source one and the it's not as good, but it is decent. The Adobe one is very, very, very good. Now it's possible that the Black Vault used the Adobe product to run OCR on their records, which would account for them being that, that much larger because of the way that Adobe manifests and changes the images and the compression of images when converting a PDF into OCR. Uh, Adobe is inefficient in that manner. That's why the files are so large. But given that, I didn't want to take 300 gigs worth of documents, have to go through and manually modify 50,000 of them to remove the header page that the Black Vault modifies the documents with, and then import those into the Apario network, right. where not only am I running OCR on it, I'm extracting the text, but then I'm generating a bunch of thumbnails. So I went from a 64 gigabyte archive to 750 gigabytes when the data processing of the Aparia platform was finished. If I had started with 300 gigs, then the cost of running the Aparia network would literally be three to four times more expensive. Wow. Okay. All right. Wow. So the impetus for starting Project Aparia was the JFK documents. And yep. And where are you at with the process of that right now? Are they up? Can people go search them? And tell me about how people would go ahead and do that. Excellent. And then how would they ultimately find George Herbert Walker Bush in there? <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, I want to start with that one first because okay. you know, uh, being somebody who has had the privilege of reading through as many of the records that I have, one of the things that I've learned is that there's a lot of communists who wanted Kennedy killed. And it's easy to pin the blame on the CIA because that means that you don't have to do the heavy lifting and find out why is Portugal so interested in the JFK files. Tell me. Give me all of it. I don't know. Oh. I'm oh. the software engineer. I'm the data scientist. Gave me a new road to walk down. Yeah. And so that's the thing. Like that, When I was doing the development of this, I didn't know what I was expecting. And so I'm just a data engineer, a programmer. And I looked at this and said, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at here. How do I make sense of this? How would I make sense of it as a software engineer? And the way I would do it is I would first run it through OCR, and then I would try to extract tags out of it. And so what I did is I ran a bunch of preliminary software against the entire JFK files that extracted the text of the documents and then mapped common words that I identified as being countries, date formats based on a regular expression, and then names, like known names, and then automatically scan each page for the given tag and then tag the document and make the tag accessible. So all of the JFK files are currently in the Aparia platform and all of those are instantly searchable. They've been fully OCR'd. You can search in keywords from them and you can get back results. Now, the problem that you have is that some of the documents are fragmented, meaning that you get a document that's from the JFK records and you're like, wait a second, why is Bigfoot in the JFK files? Why is the 13th floor of the CIA called the Office of Political Assassinations? And why was the CIA paying $500,000 to known members of the mafia back in the 60s and 70s to assassinate the cousins and family members of Fidel Castro when they were in the United States? Those sound like very good doing? questions. <laughs> why are they doing it? I don't know why they're doing yeah. it. And that's the thing. I'm looking at these records. And I don't know what's inside of them. And so what I'm trying to do as a software and data engineer is look at this and make it simple. Because right now the narrative has been controlled 
by people who have financial interests. Yeah. And if the financial interest is to keep the secret of who killed Kennedy or what killed Kennedy or what the event was that caused Kennedy's assassination to manifest, then maybe that event, the reason why you classify information is so that you prevent the public from reacting. The government yeah. still doesn't want the public to react to right. the initializing event that catalyzed Kennedy's assassination. They're still covering it up, meaning we still need to look into it. Yeah, I mean, that Kennedy assassination is, I think, a seminal moment for everything that's happening now still. You know, the idea, and I, I think that we're probably similar in age. Our parents, I imagine, were boomers. And um, the idea that they grew up in that period and there were these political assassinations, you know, you got um, JFK, RFK, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, right? Political assassinations all over the place. We don't know what happened and everybody just accepted it. And that seems like such a strange place to be in society. You know that the media and your government are lying to you about what happened. You feel powerless to get the right answer. And so the response is just move on, I guess. That seems crazy to me. And I guess that that's part of what the reawakening now is, is that people have decided that they're not going people to stand for that anymore. Chris, people did move on, and then 9-11 happened. Right, right, exactly. And people did move on, and, and then 9-11 happened. people have moved happened. on from 9-11, too. Yeah, but you interestingly I mean? enough, there are over 6,390 pages of newly released 9-11 files. These are brand-new files. Right. Brand-new files. Are they out now, though? They're out right now. They've been out since the beginning of the month. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I saw this, the headlines about you know the the 911 families not wanting Joe Biden to go to any 911 memorials because he hadn't provided them with closure and no one else had prior but I didn't realize that all those files were out so are those on apario or soon to those be are. on apario they are they've been on apario since the beginning of the month and uh you know they fly under the radar you know Hillary Clinton's deleted emails released under FOIA are on yeah. there as well. You know, you can, you know, you can make Hillary Clinton's day even worse by reading her deleted emails. And that's really ultimately what we need is to have the entire digital army searching into some of this past information, because a lot of this has never been sifted through by anyone. Right. And there's a very good reason and very easy understanding as to why. And we have to look at what the problem is first, identify it and then come up with a solution. Now, that's something that I've been very gifted at since the very beginning of my early career. I've been able to look at complex sets of data that span over hundreds of millions of, of potential records. And I'll give you an example of a product that I made for Cisco uh, back in 2000, 2013. Uh, it was relating to uh, power distribution units, PDUs, smart PDUs that had IP addresses and network access that would give me the ability of enabling and disabling an outlet, a power outlet that you plug a server into. What this did is I was able to cross-reference our resource allocation tracking tool that had over 3 million pieces of Cisco hardware 
in it that was used globally for recreating government lab infrastructures. And they would take these networks and they would build them out, you know, have a thousand devices in them. They'd send the network engineers into the lab and they would pull the devices down, put them on the racks, connect them, wire them up, et cetera. Now, from the management perspective at the sea level, it was interesting to see how much money are we spending on electricity and how do we balance the budget when it comes to the amount of electricity our data center is spending. And so what I did is I took our project management tool that we had that had a bunch of data in it. I took our resource tracking tool that had a bunch of data in it. And what I did is I built a power unit management system on top of it that would turn off the switches on the power units if the engineer did not check the equipment out in the resource tool. And that gave leadership the ability from the project management dashboard, the ability to see the cost estimates of how much that project cost the business from the vantage point of electricity. But specifically what it did is it allowed the project manager to select the data center that their project would be created in. And they would be able to see the resource allocations of uh, equipment that's in Asia Pacific, equipment that's in North America, South America, uh, Middle East, uh, Europe. They'd be able to see which data center had the most equipment that they needed, and then they would reserve their equipment under that data center, but there was a bidding because electricity in Texas was 10 cents a kilowatt hour, whereas in California, it was 21 cents a kilowatt hour. And so if you have a 210% increase in cost of electricity, and you can tell your network engineer that's located in North Carolina, don't put the data center in California, put it in Texas. That saves the business literally millions of dollars a month. That's incredible. It's also just incredible the the scale of that system and the fact that someone actually has to go from that massive scale down to such a, a granular level of understanding so that you can operate like on an individual basis. Like that's like basically taking a bucket of sand and being like, you gotta find uh you know the the third grain, the two thousandth grain, and the ten thousandth grain, right? And you're devising a system to be able to do that and then control that. That's pretty mm-hmm. incredible. Okay, so then let's let's port that right back to um, sifting through this intelligence that people have not gone through. You know, and I, it it comes to mind that there are people creating these documents originally, and they probably have to pass these up a chain of their organization and maybe the person above them reads it and the person above that reads it and eventually someone stops reading it. It goes into a filing cabinet and then it goes into a vault somewhere and no one ever reads it again. And so there are these critical pieces of information that may have only ever been read by three or four or five people in their entire existence. And then they just vanish into obscurity until now. That's right. And a lot of information. Okay. A lot of information that is still classified within the JFK files could easily be declassified through FOIA because the, the, the justifications and the standings, the legal standings of the government right now do not hold because these files are over 50 years old and we have a right to see them. They yeah, must 100%. release these files. They must release these files. I don't care if George Herbert Walker Bush is in these files. I don't care if Bush Jr. are in these files. I don't care if Chelsea Clinton is in these files. Sure. These files must be released. They are over 50 years old. They must be released at this point. But you mentioned something very important. 
And that is going from uh, the person who has, you know, there's three or four people who might have seen this classified information at one point. How do you get it into the public's eye? And one of the things that I've learned through studying open source intelligence is that there's basically a scale going from the top level of classification to the public. CNN is over here, mm-hmm. and then all the classification levels are over here. So CNN is on this side, classification levels are on this side. And what you're seeing is the transition of information that goes from classification level 99 and higher to special access program, to SCI, to top secret, to secret, to confidential, to sensitive law enforcement, and then OSN, and then CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, all of the mainstream media are on the other side of OSN, and then the public. And if you think about the vantage point of how the public sees into that position, where they see, what is the government doing? I want to know about Operation Paperclip. Well, that was in the far side over in Class 99 for a long time. And then through the years, there's a Doppler effect in the declassification effort, where they take the records and they say, this is Class 99, no more. Now it's SEI top secret, no more. Now it's secret, no more. Now we're going to unclassify it. And it's going to move down the chain. And it's the Doppler effect that you have. Ultimately, what Apario does is it is capitalizing on the OSN block of that transition that takes you from class 99 to CNN. Mm -hmm. And it's taking the efforts in between the CNN and the unclassified law enforcement sensitive classification levels. And what I'm doing is I'm presenting a tagging system and a searching system that lets you as a researcher bypass the media entirely to do the open source resource uh, research on these documents, but utilize what I call stumble into and utilize my tagging system that I built. Okay. Yeah. So everything that we actually get to understand from what the government is doing usually, or we've always believed in our lives that that requires a media pass through. We're like, how are we supposed to know what happens at the the department of defense? Well, I guess we got to read all the possible articles we can find in the New York times and the wall street journal and CNN and wherever else. And then we have our best possible understanding, right? But that's actually not true at all. And I think that that's one of the awakenings that people are having. Like that is still just such a minute fraction. And it's not even just that it's such a small portion of the data. It's that it's such a small portion of the data after it passes through a narrative approval process where the Department of Defense, for instance, says, hey, CNN, This is how we would like you to inform the public about what we've been doing, right? They don't have to do that anymore. They don't have to tell CNN that anymore because John Brennan works at CNN. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they just decide. Literally, in the 70s, during the Warren Commission, it was revealed that the CIA had paid journalists embedded into the mainstream media. And that's Mockingbird. Yeah. Mockingbird doesn't exist right now. The reason why is because... All of the Intel directors are now on the mainstream media and they don't rely on having somebody else covertly do the lying to you. Now, these people who are experts in lying are the ones who are in the mainstream media telling you that, oh, Trump colluded with Russia, even though there's literally no evidence of it. But the evidence that Biden colluded with China is overwhelming. The evidence of the treason is overwhelming. 
And the gaslighting that the media is involved in has become such a gravitational problem of our existence that we must stand up and fight for this. Because I'm 100% with you on that. We can't allow these evil, mind-controlled Nazis, for the lack of a better way to put it. I think that's a to, fine way of putting it. Yeah, they're literally going around medical fascism and medical tyranny, yep. discriminating against your ADA rights, your HIPAA rights, and they're doing it indiscriminately, and they don't care. Because they believe they control the narrative. Yeah. I mean, and... For a long time, they have. In fact, yesterday, you know, during the week, Monday through Friday, I do solo episodes. Yesterday, my entire episode was about narrative control, how the uh, media has controlled what the narrative is. They control all the information that we get about our government's operation. And they've done that without challenge for the entire existence of television media, right? That's right. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we start getting into the social media world. And even with that, every time it opens up a little bit too much, they start putting narrative controls on. And now they've increased the censorship regime to the point where everyone can see it. And the point I was making with the episode yesterday is that they have fully lost control of the narrative. They are desperately trying to regain control of it, but that control is gone and it's not coming back. And Project Apario, I think, is going to be a real uh, excellent resource in making sure that it never does. But you can watch these, these creeps from the intelligence agencies and from the FBI out there on cable news every night. And it's incredible that the public interprets these people not as paid liars who are trying to gaslight the American public and make sure that we don't know the truth, but people who are actually experts at understanding what happens in the intelligence agencies. So they're just able to tell us why nothing the intelligence agencies do is ever it's wrong. So, it's so it's, easy to understand how they get away with it because they're, because the audience is using Occam's razor because they're saying is this person who was directly employed by the CIA and all had access to all this classified information, is it more likely that they know what's going on versus some idiot in New Hampshire? Right. That's the logic that they use. And they, the Occam's yes. razor is what yeah. gets them trapped. Yeah. But the, yeah, they never take that next step, though, and think about, does this person have a motivation to tell me the truth? And, you know, I, I was having that uh, an argument with with my uncle last, uh, last winter. And he is a career, um, laboratory biologist. I don't know exactly what his field of study is, but if you're a university scientist who's doing any sort of medical, like biomedical research, then you are at some point running into Anthony Fauci and the NIAID or the NIH as a source of funding. And, you know, I was going through and talking about, I think at one point I called Fauci a liar because honestly, what could be more obvious than Anthony Fauci is a pathological liar. Any normal person can just watch him on television. You could probably watch him with mute on and understand that he's lying. Right. Meanwhile, we have like America's frontline doctors out there who were talking about hydroxychloroquine and other therapeutics, and they are looked at as conspiracy theorists. And I was having this argument with him. I'm like, why don't you like, why don't you get the fact that a an individual clinician has no motivation to lie about this stuff? 
They could lose their medical license. If they're giving people bad treatment, those people could die. I'm like, this person's only motivation is saving lives and telling the truth. Meanwhile, you've got somebody like Anthony Fauci, who is not a clinician and instead just directing over the decades trillions of dollars of American taxpayers money and where that money should go. I was like, which of which of these do you think has the motivation to lie to you? You know, it doesn't make sense that we have all adopted this totally bizarre world thinking where this person, because of their credentials, is a trustworthy expert and not what they're actually doing, which is providing cover for a corrupt government organization. Anyway, sorry about the rant, but no worries. It's, it's incredible it's a, like that we've gotten to that point. Yeah, and I want to expand on that a little bit because you know you raise a good point, and I want to expand on that and say that uh, not every one of the frontline doctors are innocent because there's a lot of medical malpractice that takes place. There's a lot of incompetence when it comes to MDs because of the sure. education system that they get. Sure, sure. I was and, actually only being specific about the America's frontline doctors group. Oh, I understand. And I'm talking in general about you're talking about doctors yeah, in general, people out like, there practicing medicine. I totally agree. Yeah. With you. yeah, because when you think about it, so if you have people that are out there practicing medicine, you know, sometimes you can know their motive. Sometimes you can't. You know, look at Larry Nassar. You know, sure. He got away. Yes. He got away with his crimes for 20 something years and he was protected by a lot of people. Well, you know, a lot of people he was protected by. Well, the same thing is said for the for a lot of doctors. There are a lot of doctors who are very protected, and in my opinion, they are very bad people. I and agree. I hold Anthony Fauci in contempt. I hold him in disregard. I think he's committed treason against humanity, and I personally think that he should be executed in a military tribunal. I, I agree. I call Nazi doctor Anthony Fauci all the time. He is Joseph Mengele in 2021. With great power comes great responsibility. And when you corrupt that power yeah. for your own self-interests, you do not deserve to be among us. I, I am in full agreement with you there. And I think that there's a lot of people who fit that bill right now. Um, every single thing about the, uh, the, the central narrative surrounding the COVID response has been to the detriment of our society and of humanity. I mean, I think that the mask and lockdown response and the narrative surrounding it, I think that that is the the greatest uh, political, scientific and moral failing in human history. And I don't even think anything else comes close to it. Like people can talk about the Holocaust. And by the way, look at the look at the I'm two not or three star say, minimize that. But yeah. this is the Fair. scale of this is massive. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people pushed into extreme poverty. It's going to take generations to dig them out of that as it took generations to dig them out of it the first time. You know, no, this stuff won't. is never coming back. No, it's, it, it will not take a long time to get people out of poverty. Oh, you don't think so? We can do it overnight if we wanted to. How's that? Well, by the way, I, I'm totally open to that argument, but... Yeah, I, I'll present it. And, you know, I want to I mention something about Fauci just really quickly. Sure, go you ahead. Know, everybody, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. That is a fundamental philosophy of being an American. Sure. And so when I say that he should be tried and then executed in a military tribunal, it means that he needs to be properly tried with a fair hearing. Oh, and I believe that he does. Yeah. But at the same time, anybody that has a security clearance is mandated under penalty of death that they must lie. 
and you're not given a security clearance unless you have the ability of being a pathological liar. Really? You are not allowed to have a security clearance if you are not a pathological liar. That is a fact. What? Just of Occam's razor. Because you think about it. Use Occam's razor. Let's say that I have classified information. I've never had a security clearance. I've never been exposed to classified information. I've never signed an NDA with the government. But let's say, for instance, that I did have it. And let's say that they told me that George Bush was involved in downing the, the World Trade Centers. Mm-hmm. My conscience, I couldn't live with it. I couldn't to live cover with it. that up, you mean? I couldn't cover it up. I couldn't, I couldn't let the lie right. continue. They would tell right. me. In the briefings, and they hypothetically, they tell you in the briefings, well, here are the talking points that you respond with. And when they say this, this is what you have to respond with. And here's the cover story that we have to put out. And you have to be practiced at lying. And they spend a lot of time teaching you how to lie. And it's so you're saying that just just to clarify, you're saying that by inference, this has to be part. Okay, got you. When Tony Fauci said to Rand Paul, Senator, quite frankly, you do not know what you're talking about. Mm. What he was referring to, in my opinion, was that there was classified information that he was suggesting and that Fauci, being an expert pathological liar, by virtue of having a security clearance at the top secret SAP level, means that when he's confronted with classified information or questions that may be classified, he's going to respond with a psychological response. And that's right. why he was twitching and that's why he's squirming. People don't think that he's lying, and of course that he is. But the same thing can be said for Donald Trump. The exact same thing, because you have to have talking points. Mm-hmm. And Trump is a master at talking points, and he's a master at dismissing people when they question his talking points. Hmm. And given that, it's also in part of the one part of the reason why I've been motivated to build this platform is because for four years, Trump was dog whistling QAnon. Mm-hmm. He was dog whistling it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I agree. I want to believe that it's real. I mm-hmm. want to believe that it's authentic. I want to believe that Trump was dog whistling it because he was part of it. But the fact of the matter remains that a lot of these people with whom that this conspiracy tried to pin blame onto went unpunished under Trump's administration. However, getting back to the beginning of our or, of our show that we had, uh. If Trump didn't lose the election, as Lindell said, we wouldn't know about the machines. And then when Trump gets out of office, yes, they would get right back to rigging. Right, of course. And, you know, I was I've been talking about how people are kind of focused on things like voter ID. And if if Lindell's correct, then the interference happened in 50 states and over 3,000 counties and parishes around the country. And a lot of those have voter ID. And it didn't stop this. So there is only getting this out. You know, all the corruption. It has to stop. And, you know, to to harken back kind of what you said about Fauci and being tried for treason and, and potentially executed, you know, one thing that I've said on my Telegram channel a lot, because, you know, when people start talking and they, they use particularly uh, inflammatory kind of violent terms. I'm just like, this is not necessary. It's not necessary. No violence is necessary. We don't need to talk about violence and we don't need to talk about the executions because the truth is, if we are able to properly restore the system 
of justice in this country, the rule of law actually will do the thing that you're talking about. And we Not don't need wrong. to take what's that? No, I won't. What do you mean? What stopped communism in Romania was the president getting a bullet in the head. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm saying, but it's part of our rule of law and part of our system of justice to recommend execution for certain crimes, treason being one of them. So that's what I'm saying. If our system of justice is functioning properly, we will actually get to that point. Which is not. No, no, no. We're in total agreement on that. That's why people feel like that they have to make those proclamations, even though they are damaging to the conversation, because it's like, well, I mean, everybody's innocent until proven guilty, but Ceausescu was innocent until proven guilty. And it took literally a bullet to his head in order to unravel and reveal to the public what he was doing to children like me. It took a long time for the public to learn. And sometimes, sometimes that is how you do it. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if we don't have access to the information and we're not able to get that stuff out into the public so that people know. That's why it's not necessary this time around, because we have the Internet. We have communication abilities. We have the ability to discern information. And we have a functioning judicial system. We just don't have cops that will enforce the law. Mm-hmm. That's our problem. Our problem is with the police force not enforcing the law. Now, whether you want to say that it's- I think it goes deeper than that, right? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it's going to come from the, It's going to come from their orders and they're going to follow their orders. They're going to get yeah. stand down orders. And the individual cops, I know, want to prosecute these people. They sure. want to arrest them. They want to do the job that they were hired to do. They know that it's my responsibility to put myself in danger so that I can stop a felony when I see right. it happening. Right. And that's the type of selfless person that law enforcement are. The issues that I have are the stand down orders that we're getting from bureaucrat law enforcement, right. not the field agents. The field agents, most of them want to do what is absolutely the right and conscious and moral thing. They want to stop crime in its, in its tracks. And they want to protect the people that are vulnerable. And that's a noble and honorable and it's a beautiful call that people have. And it gives you fulfillment in life. The part that I'm upset about is the fact that our laws are not being enforced by the bureaucrat law enforcement that we have, where they're literally and, you know, to circle around to to circle back, Jen Psaki, to circle back to uh, the statement about the video that Ron Watkins published about the Dominion servers, you know, where I basically looked at it and I was like, oh, there's like this big hype and stuff. And then it was like, mm-hmm. it didn't prove anything. It was just kind of like, get eyeballs on me type of thing. Mm. Around the same time, a little bit before that, uh, it was Code Monkey's attorney, Ty Clevenger. Yes. Who emailed- And we would get to Project him eventually. Apario, who emailed Project Apario demanding that I remove two files that I loaded onto the platform from FBI.gov. Two files that I downloaded that were publicly released under FOIA, and I published them on Project Apario. And this is and these are the email, Seth Rich files, right? The Seth Rich files. And it was Ty Clevenger who sends me an email demanding that I take them down because it is fundraising off from Seth Rich's death and that it is a crime. And what I told him was to go pound sand. Good. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, Ty Clevenger is actually the one who tried to um, upend the presentation of the Mesa County, Colorado information at the cyber symposium last week because he emailed CodeMonkey during the presentation and told Ron that 
the information he was analyzing in real time was from stolen hard drives. That was false. And he tried to he tried to turn that whole thing on its head right there. So it's odd to me because Ty Clevenger had presented himself over the last few years in dealing with the Seth Rich case as if he was an agent of uh, openness, right? That he wanted he the public to be able to get to the bottom of the Seth Rich case. Yeah, I hope he is. And I hope that the reason why he reached out to me is because he was genuinely concerned about people grifting off from Seth Rich's murder. But one thing that is absolutely essential to understand about my pathology in becoming who I am and what ultimately created Project Apario started with Seth Rich's murder. Okay, it was Seth me. Rich's murder that made me turn from being a two-time Obama voter that thought that Bill Clinton was a great president because he balanced the budget and he was fun to party with. Yeah, I'm, I I'm, was literally showing for Bernie Sanders until Seth Rich was murdered. The DNC was caught for rigging the election against Bernie Sanders. It was Seth Rich who leaked the files to WikiLeaks, according to all of the innuendo from Julian Assange. Yep. And ultimately, when I started learning about Bolshevik Bernie and his ties to supporting communism, and specifically how Ceausescu used Bernie Sanders speaking favorably of the Soviet form of communism as propaganda against the, Amer- the Romanian people, was absolutely sick and twisted and evil when you understand what Ceausescu's secret police was doing on the streets of Romania. That, if you want to go into it, you're more than welcome to. I know you've... I have like, you addressed that on your Telegram a little bit? Uh, yes, I have, and a little bit okay. uh, the other night, actually. Uh, but I, I will go into it because I feel like that this is something that Americans today need to understand. Mm-hmm. In Romania there was a massive child organ harvesting operation that was going on that was sanctioned by the government. And Ceausescu used his secret police to hunt down families, steal children, harvest them for organs, and subject them to less than animal treatment in slaughterhouses, where they were literally kept alive by being forced to stay in a caged dungeon that was a prison cell filled with feces, food, and mud all over the floors, These children were all naked, they were all deformed, they all had disheveled bodies, and this was the warehousing that Ceausescu did of his organ harvesting and blood harvesting operations in Romania. This is why he got a bullet to the head, because his crimes against humanity were unspeakable, and his crimes were unforgivable. That's what he was doing. I was in the supply chain of that network. One of the things that these communists do is they bury the past. They cover up their mistakes and they stifle dissent, exactly as Kennedy warned us. He said that we face an enemy that has scientific, political, diplomatic, intelligence, economic and military operations that have been built into a highly efficient machine that controls what you think, controls what you see, controls what you feel. And every night you're you're required by virtue of being accepted by the society to repeat the cognitive dissonance and gaslighting talking points, saying that January 6th was the most violent terrorist attack of the United States history, saying that 9-11 was done by airplanes and people that didn't have flight license and proper training. Uh, Give me a break. Communists lie. And the biggest grave danger that we face right now is the fact that I personally believe that COVID-19 was a biologically engineered weapon from the communists 
in order to bring communism to the United States. Sure. And we're seeing it through the form of medical fascism. And you know who they're targeting? They're targeting students and kids. Yep. That is the target right now. They don't care about the adults because the adults are not consenting to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing, they have the big dollar signs in their eyes, as Trump says. They're targeting the kids. Well, let me guarantee you something. As a kid, if I was going through what was going through right now, I would flip my shit out and I would probably hurt somebody very bad. That's who I was when I was a kid because I had complex post-traumatic stress disorder from the orphanage. I had a disability. Forcing kids to sit in school wearing masks wouldn't have worked for me. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. There are many kids who can't handle it. They don't have a voice. People aren't speaking up for them loud enough. And the school systems are doing everything in their power to say, your time is up. You need to stop speaking. To all these angry parents, one after the other, who are coming and confronting these school administrators for what they're doing. And let me be frank with you. The school system in America is evil. There's the reason why the U.S. is like 18th or 20th in the country, in the world rather, for countries having intelligent students that graduate. Instead, we have fat, stupid, and in debt people that graduate Mm. where they're getting majors in women's studies or gender studies, and they're not learning how to engineer roads and bridges that won't fall apart in 10 years. They're not learning how to do medicine and science that is cost-effective, that has utilization of modern technology. That's not what they're interested in. And we need to take a serious look at our education system. And I believe it starts with, first, eradicating the entire Department of Education. And I'm saying that the Apario platform, I'm inspired by this platform because of what I know its future is. And that's the, the cryptocurrency blockchain side of it. We can get into it if you'd like. But it correlates with the education side. It correlates with a lot of the people who are pulling their kids out of school right now. And it pulls into... A a question that President Trump asked us on March 25th to literally, I have a mouse pad here, it says Phoenix Law. (laughs) And it's a quote, it says, my fellow Americans, the unforgettable image did not satisfy our deep hunger for knowledge. It increased ever more and even more and reminded us how much we do not know about space, frankly, how much we do not know about life. One lesson is the need to view old questions with fresh eyes, to have the courage to look for places and answers that we have never looked before to think in new ways because we have new information. Most of all, new discoveries remind us that in America, anything is possible if we have the courage and wisdom to learn. I'm confident that if Americans can achieve these things, there is no problem that we cannot solve. There is no challenge that we cannot meet. There is no aim that is too high. Whatever it takes and however long it will be, we are a nation of problem solvers and the future belongs to us. We are truly a great place to be. I love America. Spoken by my favorite president. Donald J. Trump. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah, he's my favorite president as well. Hands down. But that is what motivated me to this, because when you see how there's a Doppler effect of classified information that goes from class 99 all the way to CNN, there's a Doppler effect of information. The one thing that you have to learn about the government is that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Mm -hmm. And you also know that there's a bunch of bureaucrats that don't know what they're doing either because they're a bunch of idiots. So if the government is filled with a bunch of bureaucratic idiots that don't know what their left hand and their right hand are doing, they're going to have paper trails and they're going to have a lot of records that will be fragmented in many places. What I did is I created a system to analyze all of this OSINT data and display emergent events. 
because the virtue of how the government classifies information presents emergent events when you have tagging associated to the number of times the tag is found within a given collection of FOIA records. So all of a sudden, you can get names, you can get dates, you can get locations, you can get na proper nouns, you can get all these bits of data that come out. And what I've done is I've created an organizational structure of classification types of tags that gives you the ability of browsing this data once the interfaces are finished being built that would give you the access to see this type of data. Now, these tools I used to write for companies like Cisco that would give them access to see data about routers and switches and how much electricity they're using. That's the type of stuff that I would show data for. I would build these big data tools and I would show that data. And it was very good for those companies. And in fact, I just spoke with one of my managers from Cisco just the other night, and he was literally telling me that the product that I made for them is still being used to this day. Hmm. Eight years later. It was 10 years that I started the project, but oh, yeah, wow. eight yeah. years later. Yeah. And literally, it's like, A, that's embarrassing because why didn't you? <laughs> why did you why make it you, better? Why did you make it better? And why did I mean, like, <laughs> like, come on, it's 10 years. Like, Maybe it still I'm, gives them all the functionality they need. But that's what it does. And that's the thing, like a lot of these big, big companies and stuff, like when you go and you work in them and it's like you see their, their front-end websites and their front-end products and tools, they're like these really beautiful, really gorgeous products that have all of these really smart people that are building them. And it takes a lot of people to do it. It takes a lot of organization. It takes a lot of tenacity and character to do it. And that's what these companies are producing. And, and it's very difficult work. But the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing because of the scale they're operating at and the size of the project that they're working on. So when you have the small products that I'm building, the internal tools that don't reach the customer, they don't have 50 people working on them with a bunch of project managers, with a bunch of oversight, where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. When you have the tools guys like me who are building these applications from start to finish in a six month period of time, and it's just like, here, I need a tool that does this. All right, let me write something up real quick. Throw it over the fence. It doesn't have to look pretty. And right, it doesn't right. have to be updated. And sometimes you'll go in and be like, wait a second, this was written in Perl from 1995. Why are we still using it? Why hasn't it been re rewritten? And they're like, why would we rewrite it? It already works. But don't fix Pretty it if it's not good. broken. Point. Don't fix it if it's not broken. We got things right, to work exactly. on that need to be fixed that are broken. Use your time and effort there. And that's the mentality there. Uh, and you know, it, it allowed me in my capacity to fly under the radar for a very long time working with very high level people at these organizations mm. and having full autonomy to be a software architect, not just a software engineer, somebody who architects the idea of the product, understands the domain logic and the data logic and how everything pieces together. And I would build prototypes. And that's what I did. And so I did the same thing with the Apario network. I built a prototype uh, and I'm going to build a decentralized blockchain version of this where when you look at the Doppler effect of intelligence, look at it from the vantage point of history. I had to learn about American history. I had to learn from propaganda sure. published by known yeah. disinformation agents. And I, I was taught in school that the pyramids were built by slaves. Total false, total fake information. They weren't built by slaves. That was disproven. But that's what I was taught in school. And if I answered a test in school where I said, no, the pyramids were not built by slaves, I got an F sure. and I would fail that class. And there's nothing that I can do because the teacher doesn't give a shit. 
-hmm. And that's the truth. And the reality is that the way I see this Doppler effect of intelligence gives us the ability of importing historical archives and public domain information into this network and then allowing the blockchain version of this microeconomy of information that I'm building to allow people to earn crypto in exchange for reading declassified documents. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Sign me up. I could use some crypto. That's the idea. And it's very similar to the pre-search blockchain search engine. I show for that product all the time. I'm unaffiliated with it. I talk with the developer, Marco, who is the lead developer of it. But I advocate for his product all the time because I believe that it's great. Not because he's paying me or I'm affiliated with him or, or even exchanging anything. It's that the idea of the blockchain is to take the power away from companies that choose to be evil. Mm. Google chose to be evil when they decided to modify their algorithms, remove the mantra of do no evil, and then start targeting everything against conservatives and Trump. They decided to sabotage their own company in an effort to be political. And pre-search came out just in January of this year, and it's been very new. It is extremely effective. It works very well for me. Since do using it, I've earned well over 293 pre-tokens in just my search history and over 9,000 pre-tokens and referral bonuses. So I've gotten a lot of people to on this platform, and every person is 25 pre-tokens that you get as a referral bonus. And the idea is that it's a decentralized search engine where when you search your keywords, Google is stealing that data from you, not paying right. you for it. Right. By virtue of agreeing to their terms of service, they're not stealing it. You're voluntarily giving it to them. And so you don't get any type of compensation for the ads that Google is able to sell. Whereas pre-search, on the other hand, says, let's stake a keyword. So go to presearch.org, type in Seth Rich. Project Apario is the first thing that comes up. Goes takes you directly to page 136, where the FBI are sending internal memos to each other, talking about how the fact that Robert Mueller was used, hired by the Clintons to assassinate Seth Rich. And that is what upset Ty Clevenger, is that I made it easily accessible, and that people didn't have to go through journalists or mainstream media outlets. Or I, That's what I believe he was upset about. Did you guys resolve that? Because that never made sense to me. I just gave him the middle finger virtually. Yeah. Said, Go yeah, yeah. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not violating any statutes. I'm not infringing on anybody's rights. All you're doing is making it so that people can have a better understanding of what actually happened. All that like, what better that step toward justice is there than that? Yeah, you can already see the records. Okay, they're already right. right. Everything on Apario is already public. There's nothing exclusive. There's nothing exclusive. Even the 9-11 files, it's already public. It's just fragmented. All these FOIAs are fragmented, and you have to be able to aggregate them into a central location. That's what a lot of people are upset about, that I'm aggregating them into a central location, and I'm going to create a financial incentive for people to look into them. Yeah, I don't, I don't see what's wrong with that by any measure. That well, doesn't it seem to John make Brennan's sense. very upset. It would, it would definitely well, okay, make John yeah, he is. very upset. It would definitely make, uh, you know, uh, Director Yorquez of DHS very upset. Uh, it would definitely give them grounds for suspending me from social media, blocking me, saying to me, saying to me that I'm a domestic terrorist. Why? Because I'm building a piece of software that makes it easy to look at things that are already public. Yeah. 
Well, that's all domestic terrorism now is, apparently, is spreading information. You're only allowed to spread propaganda in communist Romania. Otherwise, the secret police will steal your children and harvest their organs. Well, hopefully we have uh, enough time to get out of that before it begins here. We only have one chance to stop communism before it gets here. Well, I mean, I think in many ways it's already here. Well, it already is before the secret police take over. We don't have secret police right now. Right. We still have our freedoms. We can still defy the government because we are consent of the governed. Yeah. And we have the power. And the election exposure of the election fraud is of paramount national security. Oh, absolutely. As a sovereign nation, as somebody who was saved by this country, as an immigrant who was saved by this country. It's a matter of national security that we not only protect Lindell, but reveal what the election fraud was. And yeah. ultimately reinstate Trump because Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the thing, man. People are like, OK, well, let's say I agree with you. Trump still can't come back. There's no way to do that constitutionally. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's every single element. Yeah. Every element that put Joe Biden in office is fraud. It's all fraud. You don't have like, to suggest that it's fraud and so to have precedent. Literally, we have had elections in the past that have been overruled sure, by a sure. judge. And the next day, the person who won the election, even Flip months right later, around. Yep. is instated instantly. It just has never been done at the president level. Yeah. But it has been done. Have you, paid, have you paid any attention to the devolution theory? I haven't, no. I've been too oh, busy okay. with literally writing tags. Oh, no, I'm not, su- I'm not surprised. I just yeah. figured I would bring it up just to find out if you had any thoughts on it. But uh, it's just basically the idea that the whole thing has been a, uh, a military operation and that Trump has been president the entire time and that most of what we're seeing now is a facade for i guess awakening the public and allowing this to be a smooth transfer out of that corrupt system into something resembling freedom i've heard that and uh i want to believe that it's real uh so what we'll find out i'm keeping my head focused on what my job is and my job is to deliver project apario so Um, what do you have coming up so we have the interface coming for tags. And so I drew a picture of it and I'll pull it up on the screen and I'll wait for it to get in focus on, on my side. Uh-huh. But we'll talk about this for a second. Uh, and it's the graphical interface to viewing tags because tags are the brainchild of the Aparia platform. Okay. And so this right here represents kind of a GUI drawing of tags. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Up here at the top, you have search for tags and you can put in any type of tag that you want that's in the system. It's going to show you a world map. Mm-hmm. It's going to show you a bunch of bubbles with a bunch of people's faces on it right here. Okay. And it's going to show you a timeline grid right here. It's mm-hmm. going to let you select time to say, I want documents from 1900 to 1950. And then bubbles show up over the world map that represent where in the world those records for that duration of time were from. And then the bubbles on the side that represent people over here would be all the top players, all the top person tags that exist in this subset of data. And then you browse the data down here by scrolling through it or stumbling into, which is a link over here. So it seems to me like you're basically um, covering all the possible bases to distribute information 
moving around completely, moving around the the media and all of the different ways to propagandize what the truth is. You are cutting out that middleman. And then basically, ultimately, what this is going to be is like a grand encyclopedia of the world in some sense. You know, I think did you watch Game of Thrones? No. No, my, well, my, my first fiance who had an affair on me was big into Game of Thrones with the person <laughs> she was having an affair with. So I've okay. been uh, forever poisoned from Game of Thrones. All right, I have I no interest to ever see it. All right. Well, anyway, they had the the big library where all the, the all the information in the world was. And uh, you know, you had to Did they call it the to, Vatican? <laughs> right, no. Um that's funny. Uh but that's kind of like what I envision with this. Like this is the place where all of the information is and you can find out about really anything because, you know, when we're talking about declassifying uh, material that the government has, we often think of it as, you know, the truth about these scandals, the JFK scandal, the Seth Rich scandal, whatever it is. But what I about call it just or, I wouldn't call it truth. I would call enough. it raw intelligence. Fair enough. This is raw intelligence that this platform aggregates in, and then it makes sense of it through using tagging systems. Mm-hmm. An important aspect here that I want to I want to make sure that we cover is the uh, how the cryptocurrency has value, because I can make up points and just give you points for looking at documents, and that doesn't mean anything. It yeah. doesn't represent any of tangible value. The problem that I had, and I explained the OCR in a very detailed way. And I did that on purpose because there's an efficiency on the platform of around 70%. 70% of the text that the OCR engine runs is accurate. That means 30% of the text is not accurate. That breaks search. That makes it so that it's more difficult to search. Because sometimes if you see the word hut, it, instead of interpreting it as an O, it might interpret it as an E. And so it's H-E-T. And so when you're typing in hot, 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 nothing comes back because the OCR misread it. That does exist on this platform and it is a problem. I am aware of that. That's the downside of AI. So in order to groom a million documents or a hundred million documents on this platform where it's raw OSN data and making it more searchable by making it easier to read, by offering audio transcriptions to allow people that may have vision disabilities to access the data, to tag the data, to say, on this page, these are the tags. Here's a person. Here's an acronym. Here's an agency. Here's an agreement. Here's a date. Here's a location. Here's a country. Here's a city, etc. Uh, you have all these efforts. Anytime a person wants to make a change to the document, they have to stake the change with crypto. That crypto that gets staked is then, in order to vote, it creates a proposal. Because I want your peers to be able to control whether or not your change request goes into the network. I don't want to be the one to groom the data. Right. Quite, quite frankly, I don't have the time to do it, and I'm just sure. a data guy. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a proposal and a voting system that allows people who have a positive balance of crypto where they can start using Stumble into, and this currently does not exist on Project Aparia. This is fall 2021, spring 2022. And... The objective is for you to be able to go in, you stumble into, earn your earn your crypto, get a balance of crypto on your account. Right now it's called reputation. 
and that will directly translate into crypto, by the way. Uh, and this is going to look at, here's your balance. Here's the change that you're making. How big of a change is it? Are you adding a new document to the system? Are you editing the text? Are you asking for us to rotate the page? Are you telling us that you want to remove it from stumble into? Are you saying that you want to offer an audio transcription of it? So you have to pay to make that contribution. And so paying crypto is the form of staking your commitment that it is authentic. Because if you submit something that is not authentic and it doesn't get accepted by the voting system, then you would lose the crypto that you paid. So it incentivizes people to only contribute correct information. And then once the proposals are all in, they go through a 72-hour hold period once the proposal is made. And then all of the members who have a positive balance on their wallet would be eligible to vote on the proposal, where each person who votes on a proposal would stake the proposal by paying a crypto fee for that vote to say, I'm certifying that my vote is authentic by paying 0.03 crypto in order to certify, yes, I stake, the, I stake this with my crypto that it is authentic. And what happens is there's a pool of crypto funds that will be reserved for publishers and distributors of records. So if you file a FOIA and you upload your documents to Apario, you would get a kickback of all of the crypto that is involved in every one of the transactions done against that document, whether it's in the form of tagging it, whether it's in the form of rewarding based on stumble into, they would get a, a portion of that. The surplus would go into the Project Apario main wallet, and that pool of crypto would then be redistributed to people who create associations to tags against pages by dragging the cursor and saying, yes, I'm tagging this as CIA. I'm tagging this as United States. You earn crypto for every page that you tag. You earn crypto for every stumble into that you do. And out of that main pool, the funds are distributed to the person who uploaded the document first and to the person who made the modification to the document. But it creates this life cycle where people are incentivized not only to use it for learning about factual information that the government says, not necessarily truthful information, sure, because the government lies. Right. And sometimes a bureaucrat could could write an email that gets released in a FOIA document who might just be batshit crazy. That's very possible. It doesn't make it fact that the email in the Seth Rich files say that Robert Mueller was the one who hired the you know the, the hitman on Seth Rich. It was just a conjecture that was made by somebody in the government, and now we have access to it. Let's ask the questions now that we have that not only the government is asking who did this, why don't we ask who did it? And why don't we demand declassification of these files? Does this also provide some sort of defensive mechanism? Because you can imagine that the larger this grows, the more incentive government will have to just kind of mess with your system. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's very possible. And that the idea behind protecting the system against that is through the form of proposals, um, making them have 72 hour hold periods, making people stake the proposal with their crypto that says, yes, I certify this. And depending on the change, the amount of votes required is a percentage of the wallet holders with positive balance in order to adopt. And so if the requirement is that we have 100 million people that are on, and we need a 1% of the entire community to vote in order for a proposal to be accepted, 
then the threshold of affirmative votes may become 10,000, maybe 500, maybe 100 million. It depends on how big the system is. And so when you're looking at a task like, here's a document that I have, I want to delete this document from Stumble Into. Well, I'm sorry, that's going to require a lot of people who have a positive balance to say, yes, I want this removed. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Man, this stuff is kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it's a lot. It is a lot. But also, uh, you know, uh, I don't think I, I like to make a joke every now and then that, you know, the, the retort that they always made about getting deplatformed from social media was, well, go build your own Twitter, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing that people are doing it. For real. This is awesome. I mean, it's like, it's like a a Wikipedia that's not updated by communist morons. Yeah. I mean, Wikipedia is, you know, um, just like a microblogging that's community sourced microblogging. And what I'm doing is, you know, most social media platforms right now are, you tell me what you want to say. That's that section 230 protection that they get. Because right. you're the one who's providing that data to them, and then they're just hosting it and distributing it, and they're not reliable for it. Right. What I'm doing is I'm publishing FOIA documents, Freedom of Information Act declassified yep. public domain records. I'm publishing those as a publisher. And people that are using the platform, their conversations are around my published works. My published works are FOIA documents. So the conversations that get created on this network derive first from an official record, not the other way around. Yeah. Because right now everything is fragmented. You can literally have that page 136 of the Seth Rich number two PDF, and you could have 100,000 unique posts on Facebook about it that are all fragmented. Nobody can see that they're all talking about it, and everybody's in their little silo, and they're all shadow banned, and they can't see anything. Yep. What this platform does on the other hand is that here's the source of truth. Everybody's coming into it. Here are the metrics on it. And these files are being seen hundreds of thousands of times. I love it, man. All right. So we're we're running a little over an hour and a half right now. I say we table this and resume soon. And the more Project Apario gets going, I definitely want to follow along with this. And I want to keep having you back so that you're able to explain this. Hopefully I can help you get this idea out into the world because I think it's um, I think it's really great, man. I think it's really cool. You know, I've gone through and tried to look around and dig around a little bit myself, always frustrated by redactions. I suppose there's nothing we can do about that. Actually, we can. Really? Um, yeah. Just so keep foying for. You keep FOIA. Yeah. And then yeah. you use the precedent of the platform and the analytics of the platform to say that there is public demand and justification for the release of the records. FOIA is checkmated because Great. if there's public demand, they can't classify it because it's considered OSINT and not considered classified. I love it. All right, man. Well, that's perfect because that's one of my uh, biggest frustrations with these public documents on on, on a regular basis. Um, so awesome. Thank you so much, man. I'm glad we got to finally get this and make this happen. Yes, really thank you. I appreciate it. that. All right. Thank you for taking me and uh, having this conversation. It was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm your moderator.substack.com, where you can donate, or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!